This week on Our Thing. Yeah, I robbed a bank and got caught and got sentenced to eight years and nine months for bank robbery. I uh, went to Wisconsin. Former inmate and entrepreneur Robert McNeese shares his incredible journey. And that's where I met my first mobster. Well, actually, my second one. One that led to a life sentence in prison with some of La Cosa Nostra's hierarchy and miraculously to his freedom. Stay tuned for the most entertaining hour in radio. This is Our Thing with everyone's favorite ex-gangster, Gunner, 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 What's up? Welcome back to Our Thing. Tonight, we have a great show lineup. Really interesting guest, Robert McNeese. Crazy. One of the craziest stories I've ever heard. As a friend of Bill's, he introduced me. Um, he, he basically got himself out of a life sentence in prison. But it all made me think about some prison stories. I, you know, I might as well tell this. I got so many prison stories. I go on forever. But what, one of the prison stories that since he's talking about escape or how he got out of prison, I wanted to share. Uh, I'll tell you a, a quick story about this guy named Chris Snore. So when I was 15 years old, I go into the youth home. I think it was for fighting. I beat a couple of guys up. I was like 16 years old, and over like a two, three-day period, I think I beat three guys up. I was on a rampage at the time. I mean, hormones were high, running high. So I get charged with this. I get all these charges. So I go to the youth home for two weeks. I get two weeks in the youth home. And I'm in there, and there's this dude who's sitting there on the floor. The youth home is an interesting place. There's like a little day room, and then they have a bubble where the, the cops can watch the two units and this like dude's laying on the floor he seems older he looks older than me guy looks like he's 20 years old no he looked like and reminded me of the the burnout guy from breakfast club you remember breakfast club yeah judd nelson judd nelson yeah so so but he had shorter hair would you remind me of that dude like disposition wise he was that guy he was judd nelson so i come walking in there and i, I like sit down with them and he's the freaking rock boss bro there's another guy in there who knew me from the neighborhood a greek dude tommy tripolitis Anyways, I come walking in there. Nobody knows me. And right away, some other, like, bigger, older kid, he tries to debo my food, man. As soon as you get there, they got to feed you. And so I'm the only one at the table eating. He comes walking over, starts trying to ask, what are you doing, bro? And right away, Triple Eater said, hey, man, get off him. That's my boy from the neighborhood. And then the other dude, his name is Chris Snore, the guy who looked like Judd. He says, yo, back up off him. The dude was scared. Everybody was scared of this guy named Chris Snore. So he was the freaking rock boss, and he's like laying on the floor, and just kicked up, and he has like minions around him. Like it was, it's just like a, you know, like like Jabba the Hutt on Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Or, or like a mob boss, man. He had his minions hanging out, and so his name was Chris Snore. So I get out of there and I go on, and over the years I hear his name here and there. He's a general bad guy. This guy, he gets busted for this. He gets busted for robbing a bank or robbing this bank. And he, he gets busted for something. I hear his name occasionally, every three, three, four years. I don't know the guy. I don't see the guy. I don't know nothing wrong. He's a Lance Cruz guy. He's from Lance Cruz uh, School District. So one day, right before I get locked up, like maybe a month and a half, because I was still working at Hanson's Windows and Siding. Now I was a sales rep, and I was driving around making a ton of money, but I was still selling drugs, doing drugs. I was a mess. I run out of gas because I'm not paying attention. So I call my office on the Nextel. And I said, listen, I'm out of gas. Send somebody, one of the reps in the neighborhood or nearby, to pick me up so I can get some gas or bring me some gas. So this guy pulls up. He's a new guy in the office. He pulls up in a black BMW. And I said, thanks, man. Can you just run me to the gas station? He's like, yeah, I wasn't paying attention to my gas gauge. I ran out like a dummy. So he said, yeah, yeah, no problem. So I'm driving. He's asking me where I'm from, whatever. He says, yeah, man, I'm having a bad couple of days, bro. When my boy just got locked up, went to prison. They gave him 40 years. I'm like, oh, no way, bro. Who's your boy? He's like, my boy, Chris Snore. I'm like, you got to be kidding me, bro. 
I know the dude. And I tell him the, the, the whole youth home story, right? So fast forward five years, and I'm in a prison called Carson City Prison. And I start playing paddle ball. And it's a big compound. There's 1,400 guys there. And, you know, you, right away I started playing softball. I'm a softball superstar. But I, I learned this game paddle ball. I like it. It's really fun. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking one day and watching this guy play paddle ball. And he's really good. And he's way better than me. I'm looking at him. I'm like, your name Chris Nort? He's like, yeah. I'm like, what's up, bro? And then I say, dude, you know, I ran into your boy five years ago before I got locked up. He said, you got 40 years, man. I'm sorry to hear that. And he's like, yeah, man, I really suck, blah, blah, blah. And I tell him, you remember me in the youth home? He's like, yeah, I don't think he really remembered it. But, you know what I'm saying? It's been so long. But uh, I was like, bro, I saw you as like this G, man, like this rock boss, you know? And he thought that was funny, man. It made him feel good. And I said it because it made him feel good. So then about three years later, there's the there's emergency count. And everyone's locked down. The whole the whole prison is locked down, locked down. What the frick is this, man? And like, because we were locked down for like two, three days. And I'm like, what the frick's happening? So eventually we got the word. That this dude was about to break out, bro. I mean, these guys were crazy. They had a phone, and this is like early cell phone time. They were having to get parts from like a maintenance guy to make a phone. They made their own police scanner. They were able to make a police scanner out of a radio. Because the cops in prison have a radio, and they all have a frequency, and they all talk to each other. And they dug a hole, bro. They dug a tunnel. They moved the, the locker over. Every cell has this big locker. And they would move the locker over, and they'd been digging at it for three or four years. And they got all the way up under the fence and came out by this the track that goes around the perimeter fence. What do they call it? There's a name for it. But anyways, and then there's a road right there. So they had people lined up. They were just waiting. Like They were out, bro. They, they, they popped out of the ground. Okay, we're free. Boom, they went back in. And they were getting ready to go. They had somebody who was going to pick them up and was waiting for them. And everything was set up. It was like four guys total. And two in that cell. But the problem was the guy in the cell with him who had been, like, looking out. Because they had to get rid of all that dirt. They'd been flushing the dirt down the toilet. Yeah, I was going to say, it takes a long time to get rid of that dirt. Yeah, and you can carry it out, though. It's not that hard. You, you put it in pockets. You can wrap it up and stuff and carry it outside in the yard and just kind of flip it. But you can flush it down the toilet. In prison toilets, dude, you can flush a blanket down the toilet. Like, they're super powerful. Have you ever heard of one? You should Google one and look at it. It's, it's got so much power. It goes, Yeah, that'd be the way to go. Because, I mean, even if you you're dropping it in the court at some point that's got to pile up right you got to move it around yeah it, on, on the yard yeah you know you go over to like the softball diamond or something but yeah you, you said so they're flushing it down but the dude who's the bunkie his bunkie who's only doing like 10 years and he only had like eight years left so he be yachted out at the last minute and he went and told on them. Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, he told on them. He's like, I don't want to go to prison. And, you know, but the thing is, you only get five years for escape, bro. So even if you get caught, it's only five more years. I mean, it's five years of your life. is a long time. But, dude, you don't tell. What you do is say, I didn't know. I had no idea. I went on the yard every day. I, pay, I didn't pay attention. They're going to say, oh, he was worried. They're going to say, you had to know that they were digging this hole in your cell. You could say, no, I didn't. But I'm scared. He was terrified that they would say, you yeah, You could say, ah, they were going to kill me. I couldn't say. Yeah, anything. exactly. They threatened to kill me if I said anything. Boom, the rest, you're good. So, but he told, and they get busted, and that's why they're locked down. And Chris Knorr was one of the dudes, bro. And the other guys, I was bummed out because there was a dude named Neff, 
was the electronics mastermind. That guy fixed my typewriter all the time. Every time my typewriter like glitched out or messed up, I bring it to him and he'd fix it. He was like the master electrician, master, bro. He got busted. So all these guys go to the hole. Now, now you're going to level five for like the next five to 10 years. So these guys are going to go into a high level where they're only out like an hour a day. They have like basically like they're in the hole for the next five to 10 years, man. Like these dudes are just done. That's crazy. But I don't know. How- that guy better hope he never sees them again. Right. How much time do we got left? All right, quite a bit. We've only filled like 10 minutes. Okay. So let me tell you another breakout story that's mind boggling. I mean, it's just, these are crazy stories since we're talking about prison and breaking out and getting out. So I'm in the hole in the county jail fighting my cases when I'm in, in a $5 million bond. This is before I go to prison for the cases I went to prison on. Well, when I was going to court one day, they had this kid in a holding cell, blonde-haired kid, young kid, 17 years old, and he's in this freaking room all by himself, which is usually how they did me, like Jeffrey Dahmer. They didn't put me in a holding cell with everybody else as you're transporting the court and back because I was a high-profile inmate with $5 million bond all over the news, the gangster and very high assault risk. They put me in a yeah. cell. you want to be more of a Hannibal Lecter, I think Jeffrey Dahmer was like a homosexual cat. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, that's who I was more like Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> it was a bad analogy. Yeah, bad analogy. <laughs> because they shackled me wherever I go. They're walking me. There's always two or three cops, four cops. They always guard me. I, I don't even know why. I, I might have been after I got into it with the cops, after they tased me and, and beat me up and all that. I think that's why. But anyways, and, and also I wore these black and white striped jumpsuits. Nobody else had them. Even if you're in the hole, you're orange. But I wore black and white stripes. The black and white stripes are for what's classified as extremely high assault risk, which is this bullcrap, man. That's because they said I attacked them in the elevator, which is a lie. They beat me up. I didn't even, I was cuffed. I'm literally in cuffs. Five cops pushed me in the elevator, beat my ass. And then in the report say, I tried to fight and attack and bite them and all this crap. I'm like, what? And then because of that, I get the black and white jumpsuit and they put me in a cell. I'm I'm classified as level nine, which means I'm in in a hole forever. And even if I go back to that jail today, 20 some years later, the second I go hit that jail, they're going to go, oh, level nine, put them in the hole. It goes right through the hole. I'll never be out of the hole ever. And so that's how they did me. And they dress you up like that Monopoly guy on the go to jail card. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm the only guy. So so I see this kid and I say to the cops, because I'm being cool with the cops. I don't have no problem. They're just walking me to, the, to a van so they can take me to court. So what's up with that kid, man? Like, is he drunk or something? And like, oh, no, he killed his whole family. I said, what? His name is Andy Ross. So you can Google this up, man. Uh, you know, if it was video, you can show a picture of this guy. It's got tons of articles in the news. His name is Andy Ross. But they're like, yeah, he killed his whole family. I'm like, God, you kidding me, man? And, and like, he just did it like yesterday. He's like, yeah, it's all over the news, but I'm in the hole, so I can't watch the news. So anyways, I'm back in the cell. A couple days later, they take him out of that bullpen. They put him in the cell right next to me, bro. Right in the cell next to me. And there's concrete walls, but the front of your cell is bars. So it's a five-man rock. So there's five cells. By eight by ten cells with bars in the front. So you know, I could talk to him just like I'm talking to you. He could hear me perfectly. I mean, I could literally reach my hand around the wall and touch him and sh- to shake his hand if I wanted. And so I started talking to the guy. I'm like, why'd you kill your whole family, bro? And he's like, oh, this is my parents and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, why'd you kill your dog? And he says, I didn't want to leave any witnesses. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, he was being funny. I don't know. I, I think his dog was probably. That was like prison humor? Yeah, yeah that was prison humor. <laughs> I think he was trying to be funny. He did let one of his brothers live, but that's because he wasn't there. So he cut him some slack since he wasn't around. Yeah. Uh, he still talked to that brother. He'd get on the phone and call him. they talk. I was, the phone was right in front of my cell. So when he had his hour out, you get an hour out a day. Everybody get an hour out, and you walk up and down the 50-foot rock. And you just walk back and forth. There's a shower. If you want to take a shower, you have an hour. 
Um, and you just you can walk up and down, talk to the other guys. You can put your chess board in the food slot, and you can play chess. You can play cards. You, you know, whatever if you want. You know, for an hour, do whatever you want. And he he'd use the phone, and he, he would talk to his girlfriend almost every day. He ended up only getting twenty two years, bro. Twenty two years for killing all those people. They gave him twenty two years. And twenty plus two for the gun, bro. And I'm like, I did thirteen for threatening somebody over the phone, and this guy freaking. Gets and he only got a nine year kick. Nine year more than me for murdering three people cold blood. And his reason, his parents said, get a job, and he just wanted to stay at home and play video games. He didn't want to get a job. He wanted to smoke pot and play video games. And when they finally said, listen, if you don't get a job, you're going to get the hell out of this house. He loaded up his old twenty two squirrel hunting rifle and blasted and killed everybody. I mean, just crazy. So a lesson to us all, but I'm not sure what it is. Well, I'm not sure what those like, no, I mean, this kid clearly had mental problems. But, so here we go. Fast forward 10 years, maybe. I just show up to Kinross Prison, and they try to put me in level one. And I won't go to level one, which is a pole barn setting, where you have eight bunks and a cube. It's mostly young punks and crackheads and like low-level thieves. And they're, they're not the type of criminals I've been used to being around, bro. I'm used to being around murderers and gangsters and killers you know what i'm saying that's level two and level four guys who know how to do time they're respectful because if you disrespect the guy in level two he might kill you you're dealing with a hardcore criminal a killer a guy who's done 10 20 30 years right. these guys are the ones you want to do time with because they're respectful and they don't time. they put a guy like me in a level one and i got five and a half years left bro you're only supposed to do like the, the level ones were designed for like one year or less and but they're like so packed in there, stacked up in prison, all crowded that they start putting guys in. And because my behavior had been good for the last several years, they're like, oh, he's got good behavior. We'll put him in a level one. So they take me off the bus and they're going, oh, you're going to K unit. And it's a little tiny unit with this little tiny crappy yard. And Tinross is this, the main one, level two. There's this huge, massive yard with two softballs and tennis courts and, and like massive. I mean, like, and I told them, I'm not going at level one. They're like, well, you're on. I'm like, you refused under the direct order? I said, yeah, I'm not going. I remember this little cop named um, Pal Tear, punk ass kid with a googly eye. It's a little short dude. He cussed me up. He said, oh, you're going to the hole. I'm like, all right, whatever. And he's like, grab me. He's, he's shoving me along. And I'm like, hey, man. You don't have to shove me. I know where we're going. Like I, the building's right there. It's a, he goes, watch your mouth, inmate, or you'll find yourself face down on the floor. And I'm like, I just laugh, bro. All I can do is laugh. This is like a, like a 50 year old dude who's about five foot five and about 200 pounds. A little fat dude. <laughs> okay, dude. So they, they put me in the hole. First day, I'm in the hole. They put me in a six man cell. It was really weird. Most holes you're by yourself, right? But this particular hole, because of the crowding or whatever, it's an old Air Force base, the way it was designed. So they're crowded, overcrowding and all. So they put me in there and there's six of us. And I've been there mad as hell, lamenting. And I'm kind of bonding with these other five dudes in there. They were in the hole for whatever reason. All of a sudden, the horn blows. You hear the freaking lockdown, lockdown, everybody lockdown. There's a window with bars, but it's frosted. So you can't see. But you see bodies running past it, right? I have no idea the lay of the land. I don't know where the frick I am. I haven't seen the outside yet. I don't know what. And the guys in the hole with me, they're going, dude, something's happening major. Some Like, there's people running by the window. That's out of bounds. There's nobody should be by the window. Like, the nearest bounds where you can walk is, like, 75 feet from the building. So there's nobody should be by the building. And we are seeing people running by, running by. And you hear cars and sounds out there. Then gunshots. We hear gunshots, you know, and we're like, what the frick is happening, man? We Cops are running by and we're in the food slot because it's a solid door. They're in the food slot going, yo, yo, what's happening? What's happening? They ain't answering. And finally one cop the next day comes back and he tells us we had a, a breakout attempt, right? 
It's that dude, Andy Ross, the dude who killed his whole family, and another psychopath who killed his family while he was on acid. He had a bad trip, and he killed like his mother and brother and father. And then there was another dude. There's three of them. And so these guys had had got some like Christian girl on the hook and like got her to say, I'll be there to pick you up. I'll help you with money. I'll help you escape, blah, 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 blah. So here's how they did it, bro. I hope we got enough time to get this in. They freaking make knives, and every week they had this big semi-truck, like a Coca-Cola truck, would come in there to deliver food and beverage. It would drive through the gate over by the control center. They'd open it up, and they'd let them in, and it'd drive down like a road, and then it would back up to the chow hall. They'd open up, and then they would unload all the food and the beverages, right? Well, these freaking three dudes come up with shanks, Grab the fucking driver, get up! They yank him out of the thing, and they grab this truck and they start driving it. But they don't—they don't really know how to drive this semi truck. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's kind of like the sixteen years. gears or whatever. Yeah, so they're trying to—they're grinding through it. And the first attempt, they couldn't get enough speed, so they circle around. My boy Larry, the one I told you about the other day, he's friends with that dude Matt Crumley. He—he—he he, he was on the yard and he knew Andy Ross. He says Andy Ross and this, this other dude was driving the other murder, and he drove by. And Larry says, "I looked up at him and was like, yeah." He gave him a thumbs up. <laughs> and he said, then they went and smashed you the gate, the fence, the barbed wire fence. There's two fences, the barbed wire, like 12 foot fences or whatever. And boom, the barbed wire got wrapped around the axle and the tire and it stalled them out. Yeah, so they get through, they're out, right? But they can't get the thing moving because the, the thing's, you know, stuck. So the, the perimeter patrol truck comes ripping up. They jump out and the, one of them runs and the cop's got a shotgun, shoots. And hits him right in the head and kills him, you know, with a shotgun. Blows his head off. I think he got a lucky shot. I don't think he was aiming at the head, but he just got lucky and hit him in the head. Killed him. And the other two guys instantly gave up and, like, all right, boom, and that was it. Um, so yeah, I'm not really rooting for these guys to get away. No, no. But they, but after they did the investigation all that stuff, it turned out, because they did the, listen to their phone calls and all that, they had this girl who was willing to help and with money and escape and disappear and all this stuff and, and they were ready to go. So now this dude, he only had 22 years. And honestly, had he not done that escape, he would be up for parole in like another couple of years. But he, they probably gave him five years for that. They may even charge him with like the murder of this boy, you know, part of that. So I don't know. but He had to escape, though, because he remembered they had a hamster and the hamster saw everything. Oh, wise guy, eh? Oh, well, you know what that means. It's time for Street Beats, where Bill Crooks from Partners in Crime reports on the latest underworld news. Bill, what do you got? Well, I got a follow-up to a story we did a year ago. It goes like this. It was a seemingly common occurrence at a French restaurant as a dinner date between an Italian man and an unidentified woman ended with a major blow <gasps> to organized crime, that is. The man, it seems, was a boss from one of Italy's most violent families. According to sources, the Gargano clan's own Marco Reduano was arrested on Thursday evening as he was dining at said restaurant with said woman. Reduano, described as dangerous and one of Europol's most wanted criminals, was snatched up and held in Bastia on the French island of Corsica. As we covered just about a year ago, he had escaped from a heavily secured prison in Sardinia, Video shows him scaling down his prison wall on a bedsheet rope like a rebellious middle schooler. It was all the rage on social media. In the video, he's shown fleeing the scene after a momentary bedsheet dangle. Despite being separated from his female companion, Reduano needn't fear loneliness, as enforcement officials also declared the apprehension of John Luigi Troiano, often described as the mafia boss's right-hand man. 
The Gargano clan, violent but not well-known, operates in the rural southern Italian region of Puglia. They are often referred to as the Fourth Mafia. He had apparently been living a modest life, a life that may not have suited him, as he is said to have surrendered to law enforcement without a fight. Europol claims he was, quote, at the top of his little criminal organization, with the role of promoter, organizer, and ruthless killer of the group dedicated to the perpetration of murders, drug trafficking, and management of the extortion racket. His escape was hugely embarrassing for Italian authorities, particularly those who were obviously paid to let him go. I added that part. And underscored the power of the Fourth Mafia, today considered Italy's most violent organized crime syndicate. You know, it's kind of like the cartels, though. When you have an up-and-coming criminal organization, they're smaller by numbers. So what do they do to get respect? They get more violent. ultra-violent. Yeah. So it's the same yeah. kind of thing we are seeing down in Mexico. Anyway, back in prison. Well, probably where he belongs, for sure. It's But, you know, guys like that, why don't you go farther, you know? If you're wanted by Interpol, I mean, maybe you should go to Brazil or something. Like, you know, or we're never going to get found, you know? Yeah, you, know, you got to go where nobody wants to go, like Iceland. Yeah, or, or the jungles of Brazil or something, Amazon rainforest or something. And Okay, boys and girls, got to take a quick break, but we will be right back. Hey, have you checked out Our Thing Apparel? It's the original gangster clothing brand that lets you represent where you live, featuring t-shirts, hoodies, vintage tracksuits, and more. Our Thing Apparel allows you to customize your clothing for your city or state. And now we're proud to launch our Atlanta line of urban casual wear. Check out OurThingApparel.com and use the promo code 1010 when checking out to get 10% off your total order. Make our thing your thing. What's up, Atlanta? It's Bill Crooks from Art Thing Radio Show. Gunner and I love showcasing creative talent regardless of the medium. That's why we're really excited about Atlanta Stitchworks Custom Upholstery. It's Georgia's premier custom shop for all your interior needs. Serving you with 16 years of experience and quality, they truly are second to none. My good friend Fernando Moreno and team will help you bring your dreams and ideas to reality. They specialize in handmade interiors for hot rods, lowriders, cars, trucks, baggers, choppers, and of course, marine. They'll even handle your audio and window tinting. Any material, any design, anything you want. Tailor made for you at Atlanta Stitchworks. For free estimates, please call 404 503 3949. 404 503 3949. That's 404 503 3949. Or if you're shy, just email Stitchworks at gmail.com. They'll take great care of you. Just tell them Bill and Gunner sent you. Matthew was a tax collector in Roman-occupied Galilee. Despite his comfortable life, he was scorned and shunned by his fellow Judeans. To them, Matthew was a traitor who lined Rome's coffers and his own at the expense of the people. Simon was a zealot, loyal to God, the Judean people, and their traditions. Not content to see God's people suffering, Simon was ready and willing to take up arms to free his homeland from Rome's oppression and pagan influence. Their paths had crossed before, now a Nazarene teacher has arrived in Capernaum with new ideas and a new purpose that challenges both their worldviews in unexpected ways. Coin and Dagger, a biblical novel by Jack Filer, is available on Amazon. If you love The Chosen, you'll also love this special novel that gives us a colorful look at these two disciples of Christ, Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. Look for Coin and Dagger, a biblical novel by Jack Filer, available in both paperback and Kindle ebook. 
Welcome back to our thing on 1010 The King. I'm going to jump right in now. Robert McNeese. Uh, you guys, if you don't know who this guy is, you're going to, in a minute, you're going to learn who he is. Very fascinating story. I learned his story through Bill Crooks, my partner here from Partners in Crime, podcast that he did on this guy. And super, super fascinating story. Reads like fiction. Amazing stuff. So uh, this should be really good. Welcome to the show, Robert. Yeah, thank you. How's everybody today? Good, good. I'm going to jump back in time, take to the beginning. Maybe I'll give a little bit, and then you can jump in and finish. So I know you grew up kind of a tough kid in the street, doing a lot of crime, got involved in all, all kinds of bad. Where were you from originally? Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Not typically the place where you're thinking you're going to end up with a bunch of mob bosses you know, in your world. but <laughs> Right. But you ended up ultimately, was it, did you rob a bank or something? How, how did that go? I remember, like, you, you got caught robbing. Yeah, I robbed a bank and got caught and got sentenced to eight years and nine months for bank robbery. Uh, went to Wisconsin, and that's where I met my first mobster. Well, actually, my second one, Danny Marino. When I was a kid, I worked for a carnival. Actually, Elvis Presley Wax Museum for Elvis Presley's father. He traveled with Danny Marino's carnival, and I didn't know at the time that he was a made guy or anything, but getting off the bus there's this old man yelling my name across the compound and so uh that's how i went into federal prison that was your first mobster you know i robbed the bank too i robbed a bunch of banks but i only got busted for one but i, I didn't get charged federally for the bank because i don't really know why i, I was told by my lawyer that is because it wasn't federally insured so i did state time oh okay but when I went to prison, I, there's only a couple of mobsters that I saw over my 13 years. You know, you know state prison, it's, it's not fed. Most of the, the mobsters end up in the fed joint. So you ended up in fed. How old were you when you went to federal prison? I think uh, 21. Right. And when you went in, it was Marino that first spotted you. And that's kind of where it all started. Right. He uh, yelled for me and reintroduced himself. I didn't even recognize him. But then he started talking. And I remembered him. And so he walked me down to the wood unit. And there was an old man with an open cell at the end, and that was Chris Fenari. You have a fascinating story, bro. You end up making a bunch of money in prison. He clicked up with the, all these mobsters. I mean, you just, you are a hustling mother effort. <laughs> you met these mobsters. They started schooling you to the game. They liked you for whatever reason, the way you carried yourself. I don't know if you were a tough guy or you just were smart or you're disrespectful. What do you think it was that they liked you about you? These mob bosses. Well, I was respectful, very respectful. And I guess I'm, you know, being from the Midwest, you know, we're more grounded as far as like family oriented. And yeah, yeah. Elderly with respect. So, you know, I was young and Chris Fernari was like in his 70s back then. So, you know, I mean, just showed nothing but respect for him and very wise and, and smart man. So met him and then uh, Ferris Alexander, who was like one of the largest pornographers in the country. And the first man to be in the Adult Entertainment Hall of Fame, he started giving me tapes. So I started selling videotapes, VHS tapes. This is after prison? No, this is in prison. This was in prison, yeah. I was selling them in prison. Someone on the outside was sending out mailing. I was buying mailing lists, wrote up a little three-page thing and had photos of the different uh, video boxes. Yeah. I started selling them for $25. Back then, there was no internet. So the videos were going for $60 to $80 in the video stores. So I started out, I don't know, I think one phone and one one desk. And in six months, I had an entire floor of a building. You know, everyone just working phones, selling the adult products. Crazy what the like the demand is for that stuff. Like I've never watched porn. I never have and not into it. But the demand for it is such a big thing. 
<laughs> well, the crazy thing is Rob can make more money in prison than most people can make as free men. And I just want to back up. Christopher Frenari, if people don't know, he was known as Christy Tick. He was with Lucchese and he's buddies with like Gas Pipe Casso and Vic yeah. Amuso. So he's very, 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 very connected. Most yeah. guys in the Lucchese family will never be rubbing shoulders with these guys. Just to put a little context. Right. He had the commission case. He had 100 years with the commission case. Correct. Just so people that aren't mob aficionados know, all of a sudden he's a guy that just gets thrown in. He was not in the mob, and now he's rubbing shoulders with guys that, you know, most Lucchese will never rub shoulders with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. High level. When I was in New York, living in New York, I hooked up with some Lucchese guys. I am not going to say his guy's name. His name was Vince. He was Big Vince, although he wasn't that big. And then there was Little Vince. So I kind of was in the circles of the Lucchese guys in, in, in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, which is irony is like, I, I guess that's Colombo territory more than anything. But it just happened to be some Lucchese guys that my uncle knew. So you end up making all this money selling smut to these people. And so what ends up happening? Dude, you got the craziest story <laughs> ever, man. Tell us what happened now. So uh, I get into some trouble conducting business through the mail. I end up going to Terre Haute, Indiana. Um, was in Terre Haute for a little bit. When I went to Terre Haute, Chris Fenari sent word to Vic Amuso that I was coming there. And uh, when I got off the bus, him and some guys were waiting on me. So you think like he really said, hey, listen, there's a guy coming down there. How did you know where you were even going there? Like, they don't tell you where you're riding out to. Yeah, sure they do. Oh, they do? Yeah. They didn't do that when they wrote us out. They don't. They might tell you like right as you're getting on the bus. Right. That's what they did. How was you able to relay that to to them? Oh, just a phone call. That's what I'm saying. In the state where I was, they don't tell you where you're going until you're getting on the bus to go there. But you're in shackles. So you don't know where you're going. Nobody knows where you're going. Yeah, and the feds, it's a lot different than that. Right, but we're talking about Christy Tick and Vic Amuso. Right. That's true, too. Yeah, yeah. So they, like, you know, send word ahead. You know, I used to get out the bus and people would see me, and within 10 minutes, the whole yard knew I was there. Like, because it only takes one or two guys from the street to go, oh, I know this guy or I know who he is. And then it just goes around really quickly who I was, who I was connected to, and all stuff like that. So with you, it was the same thing. So you end up on the yard with Vic Amuso. If you don't know who that is, was it was a gas pipe or a Musso you were there with? Amuso. Amuso. So he's the boss. Right. right. So he's the boss of the Lucchese crime family. The boss. Correct. And he's still alive today. Yeah. Yeah. I read some book about that dude. And, you know, some stories about him, how Castle flipped on him or whatever, gas pipe. But, like, I was in a nightclub in, in New York on New Year's. 1990, 92, I think. Might have been 91, actually. I can't remember for sure. But Vic Amuso was said to be in that club. It was a club called Pastels in Brooklyn. And somebody there said it was him. But, you know, they said it's the bosses here. I said, then I found out right after that, he went to prison. <laughs> you know, he went away. They locked him up. He was fighting his case or whatever. But anyways, he liked you. He took you into his fold and took you on the yard. So now what do you do? They Why did they ride you out, by the way? For conducting business. You get busted for running this porn smut ring using the phone. How much money were you making? 750000 750000 a month. Oh, my goodness. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Where was the money going? This is going on the street. Was he sending it to your girl? or? or no, I had a couple of people working for me. And you, you trusted them? Well, I had yeah. to, yeah. You had to. You had no choice. <laughs> yeah. like, dude, were they doing you right with the money, putting it where you want and like, putting it up and stuff? Yeah, they were, but I had some, some problems. I'm in the prison, and next thing I know, I get called to the visiting room, and there's two U.S. postal inspectors there talking about they're going to charge me with fraud. You know, back then when they sent money through the mail, a lot of it was checks or cash because credit cards weren't that big. Yeah. So all the cash that was coming in on the envelopes was going into somebody's pockets. 
and they weren't fulfilling the orders. Right. And as we know, but with our buddy Oldfield, the uh, Postal Service is one of the biggest, strongest law enforcement arms in this country. A lot of people don't realize it. That's how they get you. You know, if they yeah. can get you with some yeah. kind of mail fraud, that's yeah. big. It's not small. So your douchebags in the street who were supposed to be taking the money and sending out the porn, the magazine, the videos, whatever, they were just pocketing the money saying thanks. Right. And you weren't sending them the product. So now you're in trouble. Right. So what happened? I paid the postal inspectors. I fulfilled the orders and quit doing business. Stop yeah. doing the porno. That must have been hard to stop, bro. Making 150 grand a month. Like, dude. No, it was 750,000. 700. I'm assuming you were kicking up to some of these guys. Yes. No, 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 not at all. They, they didn't know you had all this money in the street. Who, Vic? Yeah, no, Vic knew, yeah. They must have really liked you because I would have extorted you. I would have tried. That's the kind of guy I was. Yeah. But if they really liked you, they wouldn't. But if I knew a guy's pulling 750 grand and he's on the yard, he, he had no chance around me. I'd be like, <laughs> you got you to pay. But that's good that they, they did that. They really liked something about you and your character. It's good. So when you, you had money put up, I'm sure. So after you stopped doing it, what did you do next? Vic got into a beef with another guy. And we got locked down and I got shipped to Atlanta. What was the beat? He got a beef with a guy named Scarpa, Greg Scarpa. Yeah, I'm aware. I know who that is. I'm the Grim Reaper. Yeah. I'm good friends with Larry Mazzo. So I'm aware of Scarpa's story. Larry's my boy. I just talked to him yesterday. Yeah, I don't know who that is. That's right. Larry was uh, a guy under Scarpa. Yeah, Larry was like Scarpa's right hand. It was his, oh, okay. his main guy. Like, good dude. Yeah, you should look up Larry's story. It's crazy. In fact, Terry Winters is making a television series out of it. It's crazy. He was, he was scarpa's wife it was it's a crazy story he wouldn't do it. wow yeah uh, scarpa knew about it he encouraged it yeah we'll fill you in on that later <laughs> so you got into a scarpa what what happened yeah so vic didn't want to play handball with him because his dad was an informant so he said it might rub off on him or it's in his blood some something smart ass like that he ain't wrong either because yeah. scarpa was an informant was a rat yeah. and so uh we had food that night and he was washing his bowl out in the mop sink right over the mop sink and yeah. scarpa stuck up behind him hit him in the back of the head uh, with a pipe it hit a bit yeah what a i hate that cheap shot crap man yeah it gave him a hundred and some stickers really wow yeah wow you hit the boss of the lucchese crime family and scarpa was a crazy one now at this point was scarpa exposed as a rat no, no, his dad was, but he wasn't. Not yet, right. So that's crazy. He went to protective custody right away, and they actually put him on a helicopter that night and flew him out of there. Yeah, they put that's him wild. in a suite at the Hotel Ritz. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. They flew him out of there right to the freaking Carlton and uh, probably bought him a steak. Now, when you're in there with Vic and Musa, weren't there other top guys in there? Like, wasn't little Nikki in there? No, that Joey Testa was there. But then when Atlanta, then it was like Mike Tassetta, Nikki Scarfo, Barney Balelmo, Carlos Later, just a bunch of different guys. Yeah, Sammy was around there, right? Yeah, Sammy Gravano, uh, the guy from uh, Boston, uh, uh, John Riggy. He's passed away. John Riggy was probably the nicest guy I ever met in my life. He's real nice. He was a gentleman. You know, most of these guys were all gentlemen. You know, they, they held themselves well and, and were very respectful. Yeah, that's something that I'm sure you learn pretty quickly. Like, you're not being Sicilian and you don't come from that world. But right away, these guys who are all killers, you know, but you'd be surprised how respectful and gentlemanly they are. You know what I'm saying? It just is what it is. That's the culture. Yeah they're raised in it's culture i was raised in you grow up looking right. at them and how they interact with people and that's why i survived 13 years on the yard without joining a gang or getting killed or having to kill somebody because i was like them i was a gentleman 
people knew right away that I could hurt you. I could hurt you really bad. I could do bad things. I could even call home and have people to hurt your people. But they just leave me alone because uh, I'm a gentleman. I'm, I'm right. respectful. One of the cool things, though, Gunner, when he's in a cell with these guys, you know, he's not part of this group and stuff. And uh, he's a little bit naive. And he'll ask him straight up, like, so how many guys you kill? <laughs> and they just look at him yeah. like, what? Yeah, but that was Christy Tick. I, I used to ask him 100 million questions, and he'd always scold me and look at me crazy and that's so I learned I learned quick. <laughs> well, like the, the old men that I was around, that the old mob bosses that I was around, I was around some big ones. I never asked them nothing about nothing. Like I, I knew better than to ask them, but I just didn't have an inclination to care. You know what I'm saying? Right. The only thing I cared about was money. Like, can you help me make money? That's all that mattered to me, right. you know? Because they are old men, you know? What, what, right, but he's in the clink now. He's got nothing but time, yeah, you know? Yeah, exactly. Now, if I was in the prison with them, I probably would have been like that. I did. There was one old mob guy that I was cool with. His name was Anthony Cerullo, and I was in prison with him for four years. I did. I was. I'd, we'd sit in the day room and talk for hours and hours about this different people he knew and we knew together, and I knew this and all the stories, his stories, and my stories. So I get it. I get it. But your story sounds like, wow, that's a pretty crazy story. But your story gets even crazier, bro. Yeah, it's about to get worse. Yeah, move us forward. All right. So while I'm at it in Atlanta, you know, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm hustling, trying to make money. So I get involved in a, a importation of heroin. I had a source to get heroin for thirty thousand a pound, and it was going for over two hundred thousand a pound in New York a pound. I mean, I could, I used to be looking at kilos for about between ninety and one hundred and thirty. But you're right, it's, it's expensive. At this point, how much time do you have left before you're back on the street? Well, when I started the heroin stuff, probably maybe three years. Right, so you're almost out figuratively. Right, yeah. So, you know, I'm moving a large quantities of China White from Belgium, putting it on a Nigerian freighter, having it offloaded in Japan, and brought into the port in Tampa, and offloaded there, and then it was driven to New York and sold. Wow, how much money you were making there? The government said $1.8 billion. What year is this? Uh, 95. A lot of money. It's a lot of money back then. Yeah, kilos. I remember getting kilos of China White for 130 in Detroit. You could break it down. You could put 100% freaking cut on it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like double it. I didn't do any of that stuff. I didn't know how to do that. You were killing it. So how long did that go and, and what happened? Uh, for about 18 months. And then I got involved with another guy, Jimmy. He was a Gambino guy. And he was cooperating and set me up. Ugh. So I went to trial in Tampa, Florida. They indicted me in Tampa and I uh, went to trial. And he testified against me. I got life in 100 years. What was his name? So we all know who the rat is. Oh, he's dead. Uh, Jimmy Spazzato. I can't believe that. What a scumbag. But that's inevitable. You weren't a made guy. You weren't a killer. You weren't a tough guy. This is eventually going to come. How did he know? Somebody else brought him in. Scumbag scumbag game. yeah right and we didn't really provide a lot of context before he ever went to jail for a bank robbery somebody ripped off rob on a small dope deal and he walked right in the bar and shot him in front of everybody i didn't know that three no it's three guys yeah i was 16 i think yeah for say seven dollars and fifty cents a quarter ounce of marijuana was seven dollars and fifty cents back then and i'm waiting outside the bar for the guy the guy said yeah i'll get it and he goes in the bar and he never comes out oh yeah it's a black dude right yeah so i go walk in there and, and he's in there and, and you know i'm a little nervous you know i'm a big nervous actually but i walked over to him and he, he said man get away from me i don't know who you are and then all the little the guys that was around him was you know like gritting on me and so i left and my friend and I, we broke into a farmhouse like a couple of weeks earlier and had guns in the trunk that we had stolen. So I had him drive down the street and I told him to open the trunk. And I just took two guns and walked back in, opened the door and just started shooting. Did you hit him? Yeah, hit three of them. So what, what happened? Did you get arrested? 
Go to jail? No, I, I didn't get arrested right then. I got away, but I was like a week later, the, I was at a phone booth. And I get out of the phone booth and I jump in the car. And this detective comes up to my window and it was down. And he tries to hand me some papers and says, Robert McNeese, you're under arrest. And I was in a Plymouth Fury and I hit the, the gas and took off. We got in a high-speed chase, and my front wheel fell off. <laughs> and uh, he jumps out, and I get out of the car, and he stows me down and starts beating me with his pistol, talking about, you could have killed me because I was running through red lights and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And cut my chest open with his pistol. And so we negotiated a, a settlement, which was no charges. Really? Right. And that was when he was 16. So I just wanted to kind of paint the picture a little better because we kind of had him as this Richie Cunningham guy in jail. It's not quite the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he was a natural gangster. And I would call him a tough guy. No, I wasn't a tough guy. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to let anybody just steal from me or, or you know. I would, t- By my estimation, yes, you are. Tough enough. That's what they knew. That's what they knew about you. All right. Listen up. We got to take a quick break. Pay the bills. We'll be right back. Writing a book can be fulfilling and rewarding, but often the biggest challenge is getting it published. Yet, self-publishing for print, ebook, and audiobook can be a daunting process, and then you have to market and sell it. White Pine Publishing and consultants can help you with all of that and more. We're not a traditional publisher. We're a consulting and services company that assists you with all aspects of self-publishing your book, including ghostwriting, coaching, editing, proofing, formatting, marketing and sales, and even web design. Visit our website at whitepinepublishing.com to learn more about our services and get in touch. With White Pine's integrity, industry knowledge, and experience, you can let us do all the hard work so that you don't have to. Check out all of our self-publishing services, pricing, and author testimonials at whitepinepublishing.com. Matt and Tangie Riley, two Yale Honor Students in a CIA-run secret underground facility known as the Global Observation Defense, or the G.O.D. The CIA attempts to block their intelligence from the NSA, who track down Matt and Tangie to assess the contents of the complex with the intent to destroy it. Tasked with developing a mind control process, their program is extremely secretive, and an unlikely group seeks to find out more. The couple is abducted by extraterrestrials who plant a spy chip in Matt to track the events unfolding within the complex, even as the spies already inside the God facility have a plan to eliminate anyone who stands in the way of delivering the mind control program to their respective countries. Matt is agnostic. Tanji is a devout Christian. Their beliefs will be challenged, their bodies will be tested, and no one knows what will happen next. In an American Abduction, the latest novel by James A. Johnson. You can find the book on Amazon or visit jjsnovels.com to learn more. An American Abduction. Is it fiction or is it happening? On February 4th, The Minds of Madness is set to release an investigative four-part series centered on a cold case from nearly four decades ago. At first, it was just, my mom's gone. And then it became, you know, your mom was taken by a Batman. They found video of him killing women. If you'd ever watched any uh, episodes of Breaking Bad, that's exactly what you would see. He buried these 11 women and kept going out there. He made a road going out there. You got this dude saying, hey, I'm going to show your family these pictures. And, like, he's secretly taping her. The cops don't care. We're nothing to them. Dumped her like a piece of garbage, you know? I don't see anything that screams there's two people doing this. I never thought anything was going to come of this case. Ever. 
Listen to the Minds of Madness series, Who Killed Jennifer, starting February 4th, wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Robert McNeese, a guy who's got honor and some integrity. And if some predator came up to you in prison and said, hey, you're going to start paying me, you probably would have said, okay, I'll pay you. Let me go ahead and grab it. And he got a knife and came back and said, I'll poke your eyes out before I pay you. You know what I'm saying? That's the kind of guy you were. You weren't just going to lay it out. Right. Yes, I get found guilty, I get life in 100 years, and I go back. They sent me right back to Atlanta. I was gone for nine months, mm. and then just, you know, hanging out in the yard with everybody. I got in trouble again, probably a couple, three years later, maybe four years. I got in, sent down to Iowa. They wanted me to testify in front of a grand jury. For what? They said I was involved in some trafficking of marijuana, uh, large quantities of marijuana. What, you were or you weren't? Um, well, I was, I was. But my brother had came to the prison in Atlanta, and said that he got robbed for some money and wanted me to help him. And so I told him to come back the next day. And I went and consulted with a friend and he said, you know, call another. So I called this guy, Joey Russo from New York. And he went down to Cedar Rapids like three or four days later, him and a couple other guys. And, and I told my brother not to tell nobody, you know, that anybody was coming, you know, just keep your mouth shut and someone will come and see you. Well, he told half the town because when they got to Cedar Rapids, they were being watched and followed. You know, nobody knew. And they went to this guy's house and the guy pulled a gun on him. So they left and they told my brother they wanted rental cars and guns. They went back the next day and snatched dude, you know, under the, the eyes of the DEA and the FBI. And they were arrested. And Joey Russo started cooperating then. And, and so they brought me back down for a grand jury. Uh, I refused, went back to Atlanta. Then they brought me back down again. I, they put me in a small town jail in Vinton, Iowa. It's like the jail is one hallway where there's guys on one side and women on the other side. Yeah, I've been in jails like that. I did. When I first heard this story, I pictured this story. I was in a county jail that only held 35 people in the whole county. So like you said, yeah. one hall, like six cells on one side and like four on the other side. I think this held 12 people, the whole jail. That's crazy. Where they had an old lady come in for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and make, make homemade meals and stuff. Yep, yep. That's how it was for me, too. But uh, I heard this girl screaming, and there was a girl across the hall. I started chit-chatting with her. You know, I've been down for a long time, you know, so talking to a female. Yeah, I was going to say, how long has it been since you actually talked to a woman? It's been quite a few years, you know, 15, 18 years. I don't know. I'm not thinking about anything except, you know, this is some broad, you know, and I'm so just talking, and, and we've been passing notes. Yeah. And about two weeks later, about 4.30 in the morning, they pull me out, take me to a room. And there's a, the U.S. attorney, the special agent in charge of the FBI. This is where the story gets really crazy. And if it wasn't crazy enough already, if you listen this far, this is where the story is mind-boggling crazy. <laughs> I say, keep listening. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, there was like 10 of them in this little room. And I'm just getting up and they're talking about, we know you're passing notes. We want those notes. What are you talking about with her? And they're getting in my face, so I just went crazy on them. And uh, they tackled me down, tied me up, you know, threw me back in the cell. Later that day, I called my attorney and asked, who the f*** is this? He goes, I know, I, I didn't even know her name until they told me, which I didn't. I didn't even know her name. <laughs> and so uh, come to find out, she had murdered two young girls, their mother and two guys, and uh, buried them. So uh, I was, like, you know, disgusted with that. That's, you know. Yeah. Psycho. Yeah, psych she's psycho, all right. But uh, you know, I got to thinking, you know, you know, my, my mind doesn't shut off. It hasn't shut off since I was born, I don't think. I don't it just it keeps going twenty four hours a day. And so I, I started thinking about this and cause they was wanting to know where the bodies were at. 
They had been missing for like 13 years. And so I started talking to her and getting her to tell me where the bodies were buried at. So, yeah. Now, that wasn't easy either. Dude, you had to be subtle. Yeah. You kind of had to play her. Like, yeah. You had to play the game. Like, I remember killing this guy, man. When I did it, I did this and I did that. And then what would you do? What would you do? And I, yeah. Right? Yeah. I, I wanted to rip her head off, to be honest with you. She, like, churned my stomach. Of course. Uh, you know, just hearing her talk about, you know, the, you know I don't even, don't even want to get into it. You know I mean? It just is a bad his strategy for this was he says he can get another guy to take the blame for this and get her off, but he's going to need the details. Right. So she gave me some detailed maps to what they were wearing when they were buried, you know, then the exact locations of the bodies. So I turned them over to law enforcement. Oh, right. Right. Dude, you got to be one of the smartest mother uppers I've ever met in my life as far as criminal and stuff. Because you, you're very ho-hum and matter-of-factly about everything you've done. I was making $750,000 off a of porn a month. I mean, it's like, dude, that's not normal. That's that's very big. Right. And what you did with this woman, even though you hated her because she was a disgusting psychopath, you were working her yeah. like a fiddle, just perfectly saying, you know, hey, I can get this to blame this guy and da, 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 get her work and eventually she told you the whereabouts of these bodies and you were able to trade that knowledge for freedom yes yep that's what i did yeah that's the thing about rob too is like he's got that edge to him but he's also one of the most stand-up trustworthy best friends you could ever have so uh yeah it's a complex complex yeah. individual <laughs> Right. You're, you're a very unique character, man. I'm glad that I got to have you on, finally meet you and talk to you in real life. I, you're basically what I figured you'd be like, except personality-wise. Because usually guys who, who are like that have a certain disposition. Right. I'm a little more gregarious and loud because I have a radio show. But ultimately, I think like you, and, and you, you didn't get to the point to where you're pulling that 750 a month or whatever it was. for the Because you by yourself, you had to have people around you who were... Uh, that were trustworthy, that you trusted, that you could count on. And so people like that don't just deal with anybody. They only deal with certain types of people, people like you. And that followed you throughout your entire prison bit. So you ended up doing, how, how long did you do all together? Uh, 27 years. Oh, my God, bro. Yeah, but we're supposed to do life. So this gets you out, right? Yeah. Get you out. I've been out now for about eight years and, and doing, you know, doing well for myself. That's incredible, bro. You need a series. Yeah. You need a TV series or, 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 or at least a documentary, bro. Right. And Rob's got things in the works so we're not allowed to discuss. But, yeah, he's got things in the works. Good. But I would recommend everybody go to Partners in Crime, Partners-N-Crime. And I've got the Extraordination episode with Robert McNeese. I don't know. It's like an hour and 15 minutes. You ain't heard nothing. Like, you'll hear it all in his words. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's good. It's good. It's great. That's how I learned it all. That's I, I actually listened to it twice, bro. <laughs> and I, I'm not like, like, I, I, I love Bill's work, but I'm like, I don't spend a lot of time listening to podcasts and all that. I'm usually working and my mind is going. But twice I listened to your story, and which just tells me, like, I knew it was real. I didn't question it ever, but you told it exactly how you told before. And you don't glamorize it. You just kind of downplay, you know, the things that you saw and you did. Which is, you know, what you should do. That's what a humble, you know, regular, regular dude could do. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not proud of what I did. You know, I mean, I, I done some bad things. You know, and just trying to move on. Yeah. Today, you you dispose of ash borer trees. Yeah. I, well, right now it's winter, so I'm I'm kind of in a hiatus right now. But yeah, I uh, I work with trees that have the ash borer disease. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, like just in Iowa, there's 50 million of them that got to be removed. So yeah, it's a it's a good business. Oh my goodness! Well, it's smart. I mean, that's that's how everybody in a lucrative uh, the mind like his. That's how they operate. Hey, uh, listen to this. This is real quick. 
I set up a guy, a Mexican friend of mine from San Antonio, Texas. And I said he wanted to know what to do, you know, to make money when he got out. So I set him up with a cookie company and I made him a, a marketing plan for gold and diamond dusted chocolate chip and peanut butter cookies. Yeah. And I said, you can either sell them six of them for, you know, $10 or you can sell six of them for $480. So get the nice packaging with the gold ribbons and all that yeah, yeah, yeah. and a unique French name and sell them for $480. And, you know, you may not get the good return like you would on, you know, cheaper ones, but rich people spend money just like poor people. So in a matter of two months of uh, doing a couple of mail outs, you know, I had him go through some list brokers and get some lists and uh, doing it. And he made fifty thousand dollars in two months, dude. Listen, I don't. Where have you been all my life, bro? I got. <laughs> <laughs> I I need to have a couple of calls with you, man. Seriously, yeah, that's what I did in prison. Was I did business plans and and put businesses together, you know. And and I'm not saying that I batted a hundred, but I I did pretty good. I batted ninety nine, maybe. <laughs> that's good, bro. You're 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 a genius. I think you're a freak freaking genius, dude. So and the main thing I'd want to stress now to anybody listening, he's a hundred percent legit. Like crime is is in the past and stuff. Everything he does is a hundred percent legit. Doing well for himself, turned it all around. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I'm, I'm like, I ain't going back to jail. Yeah, no. Yeah, he's not going back to jail. You're too smart for that. <laughs> you're too smart. Yeah. Well, Robert, listen, I'm glad we got to finally have you on. It's been a pleasure, and I'm very impressed with your story. But for now, you have a project that we can't really talk about in the works, but I'm sure at some point we will be able to. When you can, you can come back on. You're welcome to come on and promote. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's wild, dude. So I'm, it's just impressive. So is there anything you'd like to plug before you go, your website, social media, anything like that? Uh, no, I, no, I, I, I don't. <laughs> just leave me alone people leave me alone no I'm, I'm good yeah he doesn't do any of that <laughs> yeah i'm more like yeah i'm just like trying to stay under a rock a little bit i don't blame you bro not this doesn't you. help you know i mean i'm not you know trying to get out there like that yet well the, the unfortunate part is at some point you're going to have to get out yeah there. you do come off very likable which is obvious by your history it's humility that's your humility well, I don't know if you know God, but um, are you a Christian? Yeah, yeah, I am. Good, good. That's all that matters at this point. Yeah, for real. Robert, thank you for joining us, and thank you for all this stuff. And All right, thanks, Bill. Thanks, Gunner. Thanks, Rob, man. I appreciate you, man. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Have a good night, buddy. Well, Bill, that's another one in the books. Our thing. Everybody have a blessed and wonderful week. We'll see you next time. We're out. <laughs>